Welcome everyone to episode 72, Modeling ALS with Stem Cells. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. How are you doing over there, Dalen? I'm doing great, Kiki. I'm hanging in over here, you know, almost done with the summer, crazy stuff going on, Zika in the mix, Trump in the mix, more of the same. You're running around. Yeah, surviving. How about you? I'm great. I've been playing tourist tour guide. You know, when my dad's visiting, and so when you get somebody visiting where you live, suddenly you start going out and doing the touristy stuff Mm. that you haven't done before. And so I've been basically getting to go out and see areas around Portland that I haven't been to before, and it's it's been fun driving around. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. Having visitors is always nice. It's like you say, you see things that you would never see just with your family on a regular day. I still haven't seen the 9-11 memorial, I'm really? ashamed to say. Yeah, I'm pathetic. I need to visit. Kiki, come over, visit me. I'll take you over there if you want to come. All right. <laughs> Next time I'm in New York, I'll be like, hey, let's go. Let's go. Do it. Yeah. But in the meantime, it's time for us to do a podcast, right? Oh, really? Ready for this? Yep, we're going to do this. Oh, Jesus, all right. <laughs> all right, everyone, make sure you engage with us on all of our channels. The easiest way to do that is by going to stemcellchannels.com, where you can easily access all of our stem cell tools, just like our newsletter. You can sign up for our newsletter, and we're going to email you if you do. We're going to email you when a new show is released. That email is going to contain all the links to the papers we discuss, as well as a detailed show summary. It'll make your life a lot easier to know what's going on in the stem cell sphere. You can also sign up for our stem cell forum. We have created the first forum for all things stem cells called Stem Cell Chat. Go sign up for free and join the conversation. And of course, follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. All right. We have a great show today. Our guest for episode 72 is Dr. Richie Ho, whose most recent study validates an induced pluripotent stem cell in vitro model of ALS. But we're really looking forward to talking with him about this a little later, right? But first... We're going to round it up. What do you say? You ready? I'm ready. Are you ready? I am ready. Okay, well, then let's do the Science Roundup first, though. A word from our sponsors. The Science Roundup is sponsored by Biotechni. Biotechni brings together the prestigious life science research brands of R&D Systems, Novus Biologicals, Tokris Bioscience, and Protein Simple to provide stem cell researchers with high-quality reagents that will optimize and standardize their workflow. Go to StemCellPodcast.com and click on the banner for more info. All right, Kiki, I'm ready to hear about some science, so you're going to start with the science <laughs> roundup, please. I am. I'm ready to go. Do you, summertime, right? Yeah. And you go out, you go to the farmer's market or local flower shop, and there are these big bunches of beautiful sunflowers, right? Mm. Everybody's got the sunflowers right now. What do you know about sunflowers? Do you know anything about sunflowers? Mm, They're yellow. They're yellow. But one of the wonderful things that sunflowers do is that they track the sun. So in the morning, they start in the east and their heads move with the sun towards the west at the end of the day. And then at night, they track back so that they're ready to start again 
the next morning, the next time the sun comes up. This is called heliocentrism. And there's not a lot known about exactly how this works. What are the mechanisms at work here? And so a group out of the University of California, Davis, has published in the August 5th journal issue of Science, working on these sunflowers to figure out what's going on with their internal circadian clock. Basically, what they discovered is that there's one set of genes that turns on in the morning. There's actually a 24-hour circadian clock Mm. to these plants. They stuck them in a room with false timing, so longer 30-hour days or shorter days, and they found that the, the plants weren't actually tracking the light themselves but had an active internal circadian clock that's about 24 hours in length. So the plants, when they're growing, there's one set of genes that turns on in the morning to elongate the cells and to actually stimulate cell growth on the side of the stem that is on the east, and that kind of pushes the head Mm. to the west. And then at night, another set of genes turns on that does the opposite, and it elongates the stem and induces cell growth on the western side of the plant. So they're just bending one say the other, then the other, but they're getting taller the whole time, I guess? They're getting taller, and they're growing more yeah. and more. And they found they actually tied sunflowers down to keep them from moving with the light, and they found that the plants that were held back from being able to move didn't grow as much. They were stunted. And so this tracking of the light, they say, it uh, is better for the plants because it allows them to bring in more biomass and to increase their biomass and to become larger plants. Mm. Interesting thing about the sunflowers also is that when they're adults, they stop and their heads just hang to the West. They just, (laughs) they end. They're not growing anymore. And they're like, I'm done. Yeah. I mean, the word hang that you're using there. (laughs) But they all face in the same direction, right? They're like loaded and seen, you know, my head hanging bowed to the West. (laughs) Miserable, (laughs) apathetic. But the, the direction that they face is really just, it gets more sunlight. At the end of the day, they're getting more sunlight for a larger portion of the day. And so that's, that part of the sunflower warms more. And so that leads to more pollinators, honeybees and the like, visiting the flower. Because bees are more likely to visit the warmer, a warmer flower than a cooler flower. Yeah, so the genes are important for the growth of the flower and then the direction that the sunflower ends up hanging as an adult, finishing as an adult, is actually better for the sunflower's proliferation because it's good for pollination. Wow. I always knew they were beautiful. Who knew they were so smart? Yeah. Sunflowers, super smart and sunny. Moving on from sunflowers, how about horses? Do you like horseback riding? It's summertime. Let's get out and go horseback riding. I'm terribly allergic to horses and I hate them. Oh, no. Okay. Well, maybe you'll like the fact that humans prefer mutant horses. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, really, there is a mutation. There's a substitution that causes a premature stop codon in the DMRT3 gene. And this gene in mice is expressed in the spinal cord interneurons. It's important in the development of limb movement, coordination, and... um, This group of researchers publishing in the journal Cell 
they genotyped the position of this gene in over 4,000 modern horses from almost 150 breeds. And they found that this mutated allele is distributed around the world and it has an especially high frequency in gated horses, the ones that we use for, that have comfortable gates, ambling, pacing that we like, the ones that we ride on the beach, and for harness racing. And so they looked for the single nucleotide polymorphism of this gene in historic horses, and they found basically that the corresponding allele is suggests that this mutation came from Icelandic horses in the 9th to 11th century, and that these horses were brought to the British Isles from Iceland by the Norse. So looking at this mutated gene, we find that people just prefer it, and so that's why we breed these horses for easy riding, and that it started in Iceland. So a lot of these horses that are out there in the mix today, they're all mutant <laughs> to have this comfortable gait. Is that, re- is that what you're telling me? Yeah. Oh, my God. So we've corrupted an entire species just for our own comfort. Why am I not surprised? Does this mean that there are, there are <laughs> like, like wild horses out there that are rough and rugged or something? Or even the wild horses now are probably all mixed up? Uh, there's probably a, there are probably a lot of horses that do not have this mutation. You know, it is a single nucleotide polymorphism, so it's going to not exist in a percentage of the populations. Mm. So, yeah, the horses that maybe, you know, when you start training them, when people start training them and they just don't work, it's like, ah, that's not a good, that's not, maybe they, it's a broken horse. They're not, they're not mutants is what they are. They're actually fixed. They're the only ones that work. Oh my God. They're the originals. I wonder how it's for for the horse. I wonder if those mutant horses, if they feel it, they probably don't mind, I guess. Yeah. They're just the horses. They're just horses. They're just doing what they do. Yeah, I think it was last week we were talking about, um, we briefly brought up the young blood oh, yeah. injections, you know, or or actually, you know, sharing the blood supplies between the parabiosis, yes. or sharing the blood supply between a young and an old mouse. Well, interesting news is out. There's a company called Ambrosia in Monterey, California, who has launched the first clinical trial in the United States to test the anti-aging benefits of young blood in relatively healthy people. Oh, I'm very, I'm very upset about this. Yeah. So in their trial, they're going to get 600 people aged 35 and older who will receive a plasma transfusion from a donor under the age of 25. And the description is registered on clinicaltrials.gov if you want to go look at it. The big caveat to this study is that it's a pay-to-participate trial. They plan to charge participants $8,000 for what the lead researcher says is to cover costs such as plasma from a blood bank, lab tests, the ethics review, insurance, and an administrative fee. So basically, it's like the company doesn't want to put any money up front for this test, and they're asking the participants to do it. There's a researcher, neuroscientist, Tony Weiss-Corey of Stanford University in Palo Alto, who led a plasma study in mice in 2014 that actually transfused young plasma into old mice and found a benefit but he says there's just no clinical evidence that the treatment will be beneficial, and you're, they're basically abusing people's trust and the public excitement around this. And he, although, you know, he's criticizing it, but caveat to that is that weiss Corre has started a competing company called Alkahest that has also launched a study of young plasma in 18 people with Alzheimer's disease to evaluate its safety and monitoring. 
So then there's another trial in South Korea as well. You know, there's a bunch of things going on. This Ambrosia study was reviewed by a commercial ethics board that's used by some for-profit stem cell clinics, but they say they don't need approval by the US FDA because plasma transfusions are a well-established standard treatment. Mm. So they have interest. They've talked to a bunch of people already, have a few elderly people who have anteed up the money. And they've also gotten attention from Peter Thiel, the billionaire, Inc. reported a week or two ago that, uh, that he's interested in trying these treatments himself. Oh, well, in that case, it must be good. Um, here's my question. <laughs> All right. When the billionaires <laughs> want to throw down. They're so yeah. smart. But here, here's my question. And maybe you know the answer, maybe not. When you're paying $8,000 to be a part of this trial, they can't really give you a placebo, can they? No, and that's the big thing. It's not a placebo-controlled trial. It's just giving a bunch of people plasma injections. Hmm. People who are desperate, probably. People who are paying. I mean, talk about a heavy-duty placebo effect. I paid eight grand for this. That's my placebo effect. Right. I feel great. I feel great. It's great. You should do it, too. It's great. I feel like I'm 20 again. I mean, it's, I think the scientifically, just strictly scientifically, forget about ethically, but scientifically, <laughs> major qualms, major qualms. Yeah. I, don't, I mean, I don't think this is going to be observational, not controlled. It, this is poor science. Yeah. And I think it's going to be it's going to be a black eye for the field. I think so. And I think that's a really, really good point about it. But I think it's, you know, interesting to see that this is going on. And it'll be interesting to follow this story and see where it goes. Yeah, exactly. I say all that. And then I can't wait to see what happens. I know. By the way. <laughs> it's like a car wreck. It's like, oh, rubber decking. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, we'll see. Yeah. So new report out of the NIH uh, or National Academies of Science suggests that science literacy isn't about what people know. It's about the community that they live in. Catherine Snow from the Committee on Science Literacy and Public Perception on Science from the National Academy of Sciences have had done a survey and looked at science literacy in a different way. And, you know, historically, it's like, oh, science literacy, Americans are not scientifically literate. They don't know enough, right? We're not as good as other countries of similar technological advancement around the world. Well, they looked at it from a different perspective, which is more social and civic. And they actually came up with the conclusion that adults, in when it comes to these communities nested within societies and individuals being a part of that, that Americans are probably on par with adults around the world. So their report suggests that Scientific literacy needs to be, the way that we study it needs to be revisited and the way that the way we define it needs to be revisited, but also that scientists, it's going to become more and more a role of scientists to get out and engage with communities to be able to drive community, civic, a feeling of community and civic responsibility with regards to science. Mm. Yeah. So it's an interesting, just kind of different twist, not just can you answer these test questions, but, you know, what do you know about AIDS and HIV? What have you heard about this? What kind of stuff has happened? You know, what do you know about in your community? And uh, examples they bring up are like those of AIDS and HIV 
activists you learning about the science of HIV to be able to drive research into treatments forward and to actually engage communities to create change, to make things happen. So just to be clear, is this about like getting people invested in science or is it a, is a question of like, if I am an educated scientist, but I grow up in a community of all like climate change deniers, then I'm going to, even though I'm really highly educated in science, like I might be more likely to believe in climate change denial or I might deny climate change. Exactly. Yeah. So it has a lot to do with uh, where you are and who, who your community is. Mm. So that's where your perspective is. And they also bring up that impoverished communities often just don't have the engagement with science because of mm. their circumstances. And so there are different Communities have different engagement for various reasons. And then finally, the NIH has also uh, has announced that they are proposing removing the moratorium on chimera research, which is fascinating because this moratorium on funding for these chimeric research experiments has been on for a while due to controversy. And uh, they're proposing to replace it with an agency review process for certain experiments. One type of experiment involves adding human stem cells to non-human vertebrate embryos through the gastrulation stage. And the other has to do with studies that introduce human cells into the brains of post-gastrulation mammals, except for rodents. I mean, rodents aren't primates, so I guess that's the big concern. And so these studies will go to an internal NIH steering committee, and uh, the conclusions of that committee will help decide whether or not the projects will get funded if they've passed scientific peer review as well. They also want to tighten their existing stem cell guidelines to prohibit studies that add human cells to primate embryos up to and including the blastocyst stage. And they want to extend a current ban on breeding chimeric animals that might carry human eggs or sperm to include chimeras created with any kind of human cell not just pluripotent stem cells. And so they're collecting comments on these proposed changes until the 4th of September, and they're hoping to issue a final policy and lift their moratorium by sometime early next year, like late January maybe. Wow. Well, when you hear that all those restrictions, it makes it seem like people are in a lab someplace doing some really creepy stuff with these chimeras, with the human sperm and eggs and the gastrulation, the brains. I mean, wow. I know. I, I think it's like, you know, I feel like the public perception of chimera research is possibly this like crazy island of Dr. Moreau kind of, you know, like there's the crazy scientists, you know, renegade scientists doing whatever they want. That's not the way that the research is usually developed. Yeah. Right? But you're, you're kind of the expert on this one. Well, let me get to it. So I think this is a good opportunity for me to jump into my portion. Are you done with the science roundup on your end? I could pick it up. Oh, yeah. No, it's your turn. All right. Well, talking about chimeras, I mean, the first study I'm going to talk about, it's not really a study, but a review, a perspective on chimeras. Okay, so let's let's talk about it. When people hear chimera, they're usually thinking of some like either mythical type creature or like you alluded to, this sci-fi horror scenario with the renegade doctor making these, you know, humans with all kinds of animal body parts. But The truth is, is that chimeras are a really important tool in biomedicine. And indeed, chimeras are universally acknowledged in the field as the gold standard for assessing stem cell pluripotency. So they're really an important tool. But what is it? What is a chimera? Well, 
before an embryo implants, so at the pre-implantation stage, this is mammals we're talking about, you can take pluripotent stem cells from another animal of the same species or from another species in these interspecies chimera ideas, and you can insert them and mix them up with the host embryo's pluripotent cells. And when that embryo implants and develops, its organs and its tissues are going to be a kind of mix, a medley of cells derived from both the host and the donor cells, okay? So this is a way of assessing whether a pluripotent cell is truly capable of becoming all the cells and tissues in the body. And some people talk about using human pluripotent stem cells in this process as a means of kind of growing, quote-unquote, human organs in a non-human animal that may be used for transplant. Now, that's pretty dicey, and I think herein lies the major point of controversy, you know, trying to, uh, circling around those restrictions that you just mentioned in the revision of this moratorium, the fear is that you're going to get cells that contribute to the brain or they're going to contribute to the germ cells, the sperm and egg, and you're, you're going to either get a human consciousness trapped in, a, in an animal or you're going to get animals that are breeding and making human embryos and, and that are implanting, and you're going to have a human fetus that's trapped in a human embryo. But let's be frank here. The, the feasibility of these scenarios, while I think we need to acknowledge them and address them, and it's important that we do, they're slim, slim to no chance, I would guess. I'm proud to say that I was, in my graduate thesis, was uh, in a group, was the first to try this. We put human pluripotent stem cells into mouse embryos and then implanted them. And what we found, really, was that the degree of contribution was very, very slim. There was very few of the human cells that contribute to the mouse embryo, and we stopped it at early stages under the advisement of our local ethical committee. But a lot of studies subsequent to this, more than 10 more studies, have been performed doing similar ideas with interspecies chimerism. And I'm also glad to see that those studies have affirmed our initial results, which shows a really low potential for engraftment. But this study does more than just that. It revisits all these previous studies, and it also highlights the value and the technological and biological mechanistic insights that can be gleaned regarding the potential fate differentiation of human pluripotent stem cells and also offers a lot of scientific insight into interspecies chimerism in general. So I think it's a really nice perspective, nice little review of the literature in my, uh, interspecies chimerism, and gives you a nice idea of where we are and what the potential is. And I think, more than anything, it's a good note of how the nightmare scenarios that we're envisioning are really unlikely to happen. And maybe it's time to move forward with these studies because they have tremendous scientific value. I think so. I mean, I agree. I think a lot of this is that, you know, people are afraid. They don't know what's going to happen. There's a lot of like, okay, where is this going to go? Is this going to be used responsibly? Non-scientists especially, I think, are very concerned. And it's good that there was a moratorium, but I think it's also good that there are reviews like this that bring everything together and say, hey, this is okay. Let's move forward. We can do this. We can do this responsibly. Yes. And a lot of the scenarios that you're even afraid of are, are not even going to happen. <laughs> it's not even possible. <laughs> and let's be reasonable, right? Yeah. I think it's a good development. It looks like we're moving forward. Time to revisit these ideas. And really, the, uh, the point 
or one of the major applications of this chimerism is seeing what can these human pluripotent stem cells turn into. So in the next three stories I'm going to tell you about, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk yeah. about some of the important cell types and really specialized cell types that human pluripotent stem cells have been turned into in these recent studies. First, we're going to talk about GABAergic interneurons, okay? Who cares about GABAergic interneurons? Well, I don't know if you do, Kiki, do you? GABAergic interneurons? Yeah, I well, t- you ought to care I about I totally them. care. GABA is important. Of course. GABA is really important. I mean, yo, GABA, GABA. <laughs> I no. knew you were going to say that. I'm talking about the non-cartoon GABA. I know. I'm a neuroscientist. <laughs> I know these things. <laughs> yes, well, for those who don't know these things, these are the interneurons. They regulate inhibitory circuits in the brain. And they're important. I mean, maybe not so appreciated in disease historically, but recently they've been implicated as a potential root cause of a diversity of neurological and psychiatric disorders, including schizophrenia, autism, general intellectual disabilities of multiple types. So these are like big players. When you talk about everybody knows someone who's affected by autism or learning disabilities, maybe not so much schizophrenia, but these are real disease, widespread, highly prevalent. So making these tools in a dish would be a really valuable tool, not only for understanding the basis of disease, in these patients maybe getting induced pluripotent stem cells, making these GABAergic neurons, and then investigating how they are different from unaffected patients. But more than that, you could use them as like a drug screening methodology. If you could make the GABAergic neurons, you could dump some drugs on them, and maybe in patients that are affected by these conditions, you could see some changes. But to date, we haven't really gotten to the point where we can efficiently make these GABAergic interneurons. There are protocols out there. But they make impure populations. They take as many as 30 weeks. Hmm. So they're not so practical. So how are we going to improve this? Well, Sun et al. and uh, out of Dr. J's group in Cell Reports recently reported that they could differentiate, directed differentiation of human pluripotent stem cells directly into these GABAergic neurons using a cocktail of these transcription factors. In fact, they were able to bypass the progenitor stage, which really helped them to accelerate this differentiation. And they were able to make these GABAergic neurons that were functionally mature. They were able to create and release GABA and make little synaptic networks in vitro, cute little synaptic networks in vitro. Cute. They were very cute. And they could integrate in vivo. So they could integrate into a host and create these synaptic circuits. So they fit the bill. And not only do they function like these GABAergic interneurons, but the protocol has got the differentiation time to six to eight weeks, and the populations are relatively pure. So it looks like we've gotten through that bottleneck of making these cells, and future work is really focused on trying to get patient-specific GABAergic neurons, maybe in patients affected by these neurological or psychiatric conditions, and seeing what's going on. So I think it's a major step forward. Yeah, any opportunity to be able to create neurons where it's been an inefficient process before, and especially like you mentioned, uh, these little networks, cute little networks, being able to integrate in vivo. Yeah. That's really interesting. So you can create the network and then implant it and see what happens. These are the real deal. And I mean, mm-hmm. every every year it seems we're moving closer and closer. Now in vivo integration is almost assumed. You can't get a paper through without it, whereas Years back, and I was starting in the field, just getting the cells 
yeah. in a dish was hugely important regardless of their function. So we're really pressing on into, I think, using these cells not only to model disease, but to integrate and perform physiological function in a live animal. I mean, wow, it's amazing. Yeah, and once you have, you know, the you know, genetic factors to target, then you can start manipulating those and see how they affect the in vitro and in vivo modeling. And yeah, everything falls into place. Boom. Booyah. So more neurons. I'm Yay! ready for some more neurons. But You're speaking my language. To, I'm doing this for you. This is a neuron episode for my girl. Yeah. But these aren't the neurons that you're familiar with, okay? These are gonadotropin-releasing hormone-secreting neurons, okay? And a group, uh, Ribio's group, in stem cell reports, is able to generate these gonadotropin, let's call it GNRH, gonadotropin-releasing hormone-secreting mm-hmm. neurons. They are able to make them from human pluripotent stem cells. You're asking, well, you care, because you care. But some people may ask, who cares? Why do you care? Who cares? Why? Why? Why did they do this? What does that even mean? Well, I'll tell you what they do is they regulate reproduction and, uh, you know, relevant to me, they initiate puberty. Mm -hmm. I may be personally invested, not so much in making the neurons, but in like if I could like wipe them out just when my boys approach adolescence, that might (laughs) might be something I'm ready. All right. (laughs) Solve some problems. Yeah, no. I think it'll cause more problems yeah, than you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Maybe that's just me. Maybe more reasonable people are interested in these cells for actual biomedical application. And most notably, I mean, one good example is modeling a rare disease of GnRH deficiency. It's called congenital hypogonadotropic hypogonadism. That's a mouthful. A rare, rare. It's a mouthful of gonad. There's gonad everywhere in there. It's a rare genetic disease, causes GnRH deficiency, and it's thought that it stems from an inability of the progenitors in the body to form these GnRH-expressing neurons. But GnRH neurons are, are atypical, and the reason why is they're born outside of the central nervous system. Unlike most neurons, which are born in the brain or in the spinal cord, these are outside the CNS in the frontonasal area, the olfactory pit, essentially the nose. It provides a niche for neuron specification, and prenatally, those neurons migrate from the frontonasal mesenchyme along with the olfactory axons that project into the forebrain, and the GnRH neurons project into the hypothalamus Mm -hmm. where they mature in the end. And because of this atypical site of origin, the early events that lead to GnRH neuron specification are kind of like, I don't know about controversial, but they're at least poorly understood. Yeah. Some data thinks that it comes directly from this uh, olfactory pit, from the olfactory placodes. Some people think they come from a mix of different neural progenitor types, including neural crests and all these other CNS progenitor cells. So there's a question. How do these cells, where do they come from? Bottom line, this group, they were able to make them. They used multi-step protocol with different small molecules and cytokines that I'm not going to tell you about, but you can see them in the paper on the website linked. But ultimately, they were able to get these neurons, and it was reproducible, this protocol, in embryonic stem cells as well as the induced pluripotent stem cells. So this could be a really useful translational tool for investigating mechanisms of this hypogonadotropic hypogonadism, but also looking at other you know, mechanisms, general mechanisms or pathological mechanisms in human puberty and reproductive disorders. So it's another cell type that we really couldn't make or didn't really understand, couldn't make efficiently before that now we're poised and now we're set up 
do a lot of important work. Not by me, maybe by you, Kiki. <laughs> Not by me either, but I'm glad someone is doing it. So we got to get somebody to do this work. Yeah. You got more? All right, last. I got one more. This is Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome, okay? So another application of pluripotent stem cells is this disease modeling and potentially like with patient Pacific cells, correcting the disease and then replacing the cells and fixing the patient, okay? So this is one of those. Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome, it's an X-Lynx disease. It's a defect in this WAS, Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome protein, that it's necessary for a cytoskeletal organization in some hematopoietic, some specific hematopoietic or blood cell derivatives. What it leads to is really low, low platelet counts and a dysfunction in development of T cells, which are important for adaptive immunity. So how it presents is you get a lot of bruising or bleeding, you get eczema, you get recurrent bacterial infections. This is all very early in life, soon after these patients who are genetically affected are born. These patients typically develop at least one autoimmune disorder, and a third of them develop leukemic or lymphoma, leukemia or lymphoma, or some other kind of malignancy. So it's a problem. You know, people are, who are born with disease, they have a really poor prognosis. But it's a single, it's a monogenic disease, presumably or theoretically, if we could correct this one protein, we could alleviate all these symptoms and improve the platelet counts and rescue the T cells. So that's what this group aimed to do. They got induced pluripotent stem cells from a patient that was affected by Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome, and then they used recombineering to correct the defect. They replaced the defective gene with the right gene, and then with these induced pluripotent stem cells, they differentiated them to some of the hematopoietic derivatives. And the data suggested that perhaps they were able to rescue the T-cell generation. I'm not sure. I think that maybe my criticism of this story would be that T-cell generation from pluripotent stem cells has been quite elusive. So I think that they would really, to be convincing, they would have to show function of these uh, T-cells that were derived from the rescued iPS cells. But really more important than that, I think that while this is a tremendous theoretical exercise that's going to be important for addressing a lot of diseases, specifically monogenic diseases, Mm -hmm. I think there's a better way. The problem is you can't really generate the hematopoietic stem cell for these patients and from the induced pluripotent stem cells. We haven't gotten there yet. So we're not going to be able to generate iPS cells, correct the disease in them, then generate hematopoietic stem cells and repopulate the patient's hematopoietic tree with these corrected cells. And the existing therapy actually does a a kind of a hack that's a little bit better. They take bone marrow-derived cells from the patient They hit him with a lentivirus that overexpresses a corrected form, a cDNA that expresses the right form of this Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome protein. An Italian group has shown that three patients that were treated in this way after 20 to 30 months are showing improvement. So I think this is a good intellectual exercise and a technical mask shows technical mastery. I think that we're already there in in a therapy that may be more practical, but I think it's a really strong foundation for any kind of monogenic disease correction studies that may be forthcoming in the future. It is promising. I love the idea that they're going in and they're like, okay, we're just going to fix this messed up gene. Right. And then if we can put, fix the messed up gene, maybe we can put these cells back in and fix the people. But that's not where they're at yet. Yeah. They're not anywhere close to that yet. And it, like you said, if there's something more practical for the time being, maybe that's where the efforts should go. But I think... 
proof of concept. Yeah, exactly. I'm with it. I mean, I admire these groups who are doing stuff really that clinically, maybe some of the big pharma companies that are starting to get into this, they kind of look at that askance. They say, ah, well, we could do it this way. Why not do it the cheap and easy way and make us a lot of money? Why do we here? Well, you know, scientists, they take the hard road, but that hard road has a lot of rewards. Yeah, and like you said, if it's a multiple, not just this one, but if it's a, a process, a technique that can work for, say, any monogenic disease, then this is, you know, the panacea could open wide. Exactly. And there are a lot of diseases out there that derive from just one gene. So, yeah. Good tech. And that's it. That's all I got for you. Stem cell stories finished. All right. Well, that was an awesome roundup. I think there was a lot of great stuff in there. Remember, everyone, that all the links to these papers will be up on the episode show page at stemcellpodcast.com. And of course, they can be emailed directly to you if you sign up for the newsletter. So now let's get into the interview segment of the show. The interview portion of the show is sponsored by Stem Cell Technologies. Stem Cell Technologies is always creating cool resources for pluripotent stem cell research, and their latest offering is the Pluripotent Learning Lounge webinar series. You can find the Pluripotent Learning Lounge at www.stemcell.com slash pluripotentlounge. And if you go there, you're going to find informative video webinars with many stem cell researchers from around the world who discuss their research methods. It's just a great educational resource for any researcher or student who's looking to find out more about the latest experimental methods that are being used to study pluripotent stem cells. It's like going to a seminar but you don't have to leave your desk. You don't have to actually go anywhere. You just turn on, flip open your laptop, turn on your computer, watch a video. <laughs> Sounds really healthy. Yeah. <laughs> Get a bag of potato chips while you're there. Yeah, it's good for your brain, okay? Okay, all right. A workout for your brain. Yeah, and the latest webinar, Janet Rosant is discussing her disease modeling and future therapies of cystic fibrosis and how she's using human pluripotent stem cells to do that. And you can register right now to watch Janet's webinar, check out her interview, and then watch other webinars as well at stemcell.com slash Janet. All right, so our guest today is Dr. Richie Ho. Dr. Ho is a postdoctoral scientist at Cedars-Sinai Board of Governors Regenerative Medicine Institute with Dr. Clive Svensson. He received his PhD in 2014 from UCLA for work in the Plath Lab on factors involved in reprogramming of cells into induced pluripotent stem cells. Dr. Ho, welcome to the Stem Cell Podcast. Thanks for having me. You are so welcome. To get started, can you give our audience a little context about the focus of your work, your background, and how you ended up working in the ALS model? Yeah, so I joined um, the PhD program at UCLA in 2007, and that was a really exciting time to enter science because it was on the tail end of this Nobel Prize-winning discovery of uh, induced pluripotent stem cells. And um, you know, I, I showed up and did a rotation with my uh, PhD advisor, Catherine Plath, and I said, this is really cool technology, um, and it just changes the whole landscape of science because you could study disease that you couldn't study in humans you know, a couple years prior. And so I spent my PhD under, trying to understand the whole black box of the reprogramming method. You just sprinkle on factors, and two weeks later you get an IPS cell. And, you know, how does that happen? A lot of researchers were curious. So I spent uh, my doctoral work 
figuring out uh, the signaling and epigenetic mechanisms that regulate the efficiency of the reprogramming process. And during that time, the human reprogramming, uh, human iPS cell reprogramming, came caught up to the mouse system, which it was originally developed. And then near the end of my PhD, I saw a seminar by my current advisor, Clive Svensson, uh, talking about the Regenerative Medicine Institute that he was building at Cedar sinai down the street and uh, talked about all the uh, exciting disease modeling projects focused on iPS cells uh, derived from the patients at the hospital and abroad and beyond. And so I thought, yeah, I still love iPS cells and I want to continue studying disease using actual human genetic material. And so that I came over here and, um, you know, during that time I developed an interest in understanding, well, we're resetting somatic cells back to the pluripotent state so they resemble embryos. And if we are to model neurodegenerative diseases or other late-onset diseases like cancer, how similar are the derivative cells that we're getting from iPS cells to their in vivo adult state? And what is it about late-onset and um, these late-onset diseases and old age that offsets the disease? And can we possibly model that with these stem cells? And, um, you know, the the whole infrastructure was set up here. Uh, ALS was exploding in 2014. Um, with the Ice Bucket Challenge and uh, Clive being involved with a lot of large data consortiums focusing on studying ALS. And I thought, well, this is a great disease to model because it's been known for over 100 years. It's the motor neurons, the, the cells that control our muscle movement and our breathing, that are specifically the target of the disease. And there's a lot of uh, you know decades of uh, developmental studies by Tom Jessel understanding the formation and um, the, the differentiation of these spinal uh, motor neurons. And so uh, that was amenable to using stem cells to in vitro differentiate them. So I figured, well, this is a great project. And um, that's, that was the start of the paper. Here's a good uh, chance. To, so let's take a couple steps back now. What is ALS? How does it, you know, progress? When is the onset? And, you know, maybe give us an overview of what the problem is and in advance of you telling us how you tackled that problem. Yeah. So ALS is a neurodegenerative disease. It stands for amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or a wasting of muscle because of inactivity. And it's characterized by a spreading paralysis. Patients start off by experiencing weakness and and eventually atrophy in either moving their muscles, uh, their limbs, or they have difficulty uh, speaking. And eventually the degeneration leads to um, inability to either swallow or stop breathing. And so there's about... 200,000 cases currently in the U.S., and uh, every year there's about like two to 6,000 new cases diagnosed every, every year. And 90% of cases, they're sporadic. Uh, the average age of onset is 60 years of age, and uh, in only 10% of cases, uh, it's familial. So you could track uh, a family member that had it, and you can also associate that with specific gene mutation that is responsible for causing the disease, and the average onset of that is 50 years of age. And so after diagnosis in the clinic, patients usually die within like on average three years after the onset of the symptoms. And there's currently no cure available save um, for one treatment, um, Rilazole, which is, probably extends uh, lifespan by about three to four months. And so, yeah, that's, that's basically the background of the disease. Yeah, just really depressing. <laughs> so in your description of it, you, you mentioned that it stems from a muscle wasting from inactivity. So is it some component of the motor neurons in which the transmission of the signal is just getting blocked and not moving to the muscles? And so you don't have stimulation of the muscles from the motor neuron. And then the inactivity leads to the wasting itself that leads to the disease progression? 
Yeah, there's a lot of theories about what is the eti exact etiology of the disease. Is it um, a cell intrinsic property that causes the motor neurons to just degenerate, or is there more systemic and cell extrinsic factors such as the like, uh, hyperactive immune system, inflammation, or a lack of trophic factors uh, that are coming from the muscles? So that, yeah, it's a lot of research is going on into understanding like what if all or either or all factors are contributing to their degeneration. I guess this is where your study comes in. So that you mentioned there's this 10% of these familial cases. I guess that's real fertile ground for using that patient-matched iPS cells to turn them into these motor neurons and try and figure out what the mechanism of disease is. And so maybe this is a segue. You could tell us how you exploited this platform to gain those insights. Yeah, so uh, that's a large driver in using patient-derived materials because um, even if they carried a known and well-characterized um, ALS mutation in a gene or a couple of genes that caused the disease, as I said, 90% of ALS cases are sporadic, meaning we don't know the cause of it, be they genetic or environmental. Nonetheless, patients that come into the ALS clinic, they have ALS and familial or sporadic and uh, you know, they can't change the fact that their motor neurons are dying. And if we are able to harvest and get their, uh, harness their genetic material into an iPS cell model, we can start to understand which pathways are converging with the familial cases. That's the benefit of ha having the familial cases and understanding the genes that cause it, because we understand the pathways that are disrupted in those cases. And we can see if the same pathways converge from uh, observing the same events or different events that occur in sporadic cases. So sorry, as, 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 uh, to interject, uh, is it the SOD gene that's the basis? Is, am I wrong there? Uh, that was What's the, first, the familial case? Yeah, yeah the SOD, SOD1 gene is the most well-known because that was the first gene discovered to be associated in familial cases of ALS. Okay, uh, so in that case, when you look at all these sporadic ones, I guess my, my question is, it's not a SOD thing then. So the SOD gene is intact in these sporadic, or you can't really see into the motor neurons in these sporadic patients, so you don't really know? Yeah, patients typically undergo like a pre-screening panel to detect well-known characterized mutations. And, you know, the first line is to sequence all of the known ALS pathogenic mutations, right? So sequence the SOG1 gene in their genomic DNA and see if they have that mutant copy. If not, then onward to the next one. TDP43, the most common one right now is a C9 or 72 A lot of papers have come out on that recently. I see. So there's a lot of genes that seem to converge on this phenotype of ALS is why I guess lends itself to the idea that multifactorial, is it niche, is it cell intrinsic or... Yeah, yeah. And even within the common mutation, like say like mutations of the SOD1 gene, there are many hypotheses proposed as to what cell type is going wrong with the SOD1. Is it a loss of function? Is it a gain of function? If you co-culture uh, astrocytes, the, the support cells of the uh, central nervous system, with primary motor neurons of a wild-type background. They, the, it's something about these mutant SOD1 protein in the astrocytes that are causing a non-cell autonomous effect, like a degenerative effect on the motor neurons. So there's that angle, too, which cell types are being affected differently by mutations in the same gene. And so this coming into your work on the induced pluripotent spinal motor neurons... Can you tell us exactly what you did to look at this in vitro model? So I came into the lab with the project in mind. My question was, well, if we want to model late onset disease, 
how do we get the stem cells, which are reset back to an embryonic state, to fast forward again into our desired cell type? that's equivalent to an older cell in an adult that's actually experiencing ALS. ALS doesn't occur in a fetus. It doesn't occur in a, a child. I mean, rarely. But more often, it occurs in the adult stage. So if we want to model that late adult stage, I want to first develop an assay that can measure how mature an aged, an iPS-derived motor neuron is. And so there's a great resource from the Allen Institute. Um, they've collected you know, years of data from several samples of um, human brain and transcriptionally profiled all regions of the brain at different developmental stages and ages. There was not an equivalent in vivo reference for spinal cord tissue. And so I did some literature searching and found a couple of transcriptomic studies that uh, specifically take spinal cords from post-mortem ALS and control patients and use laser capture microdissection to specifically capture cut out the motor neuron populations that are in the ventral horn. The RNA expression profiles derived from these samples are specifically from motor neurons. And so it was uh, by good fortune that I came across these studies that are already published. And so this served as my reference for an adult spinal motor neuron expression profile. And so I obtained some expression profiles from the iPS cells that we had in lab, as well as expression profiles from the motor neurons that we in vitro differentiated from iPS cells, as well as uh, we obtained some fetal spinal cord samples from a birth uh, defects research clinic in Washington. And so I profiled all of these different tissues spanning the embryonic state to the developmental state to the adult state and tried to understand what are the gene expression kinetics that span all of human life and where do these cells that we're creating a dish, where do they land? Yeah. Right, and that was the, that was um, what we found was that if we directly compare the uh, global gene expression profiles of all of these cell types, the motor neurons that we are we get from the iPS cells actually more resemble a fetal state than they do an adult state. So therein is a limitation as to their utility in representing an adult state where the motor neurons are degenerating in an adult ALS patient. You know, I always have wondered about this because I think it's a really relevant point, especially late onset diseases. You know, the cells that we're getting are much more closer to embryonic or fetal stage. But that's not to say necessarily that some of the mechanisms perhaps that are cumulative over the course of the individual's lifespan maybe add up to the ALS phenotype after 50 years. Is there any truth to that? Like if you look at like, you know, some of these mitochondrial diseases or whatever, they're kind of like, it adds up, it adds up, this degenerative force. So can you see kind of in microcosm maybe what some disease mechanisms are in these fetal-like cells, even though they're not necessarily equivalent to an adult neuron? Yeah, absolutely. As with all model systems, they're, they're never perfect. And I could point out that. So the one limitation of iPS-derived motor neurons is that they're fetal in character. But if they have the genetic baseline to demonstrate these disease-specific phenotypes, then those phenotypes might be gleaned without them ever having to achieve a mature adult state. And that's, that's great. That, that really underscores the genetic basis of the disease. That could be viewed as an advantage as well because you can't easily get motor neurons from an ALS patient 50 years ago when they were a developing fetus. Exactly. Right? So IPS gives us the chance to replay the disease and even predict the future, like fast forward and understand what were the 
what was the landscape of the cells that triggered that that led to the onset of the disease? We could study that, and uh, whereas in a postmortem patient, what we're looking at is the aftermath of the disease. What happened afterwards? So we can never be sure what was the causative factors involved with that. And so it's great combination of the two model systems, right? Understanding the physiological state of in vivo tissues and as well as the in vitro derived tissues that can model both development and I'm hoping perhaps eventually the adult state. Yeah, this sounds like you know trying to tease out all these different environmental issues that work with the genetic basis to be able to the, that lead to the disruption that caused the disease. I mean, 50 years of life. I mean, yes, maybe you can find that initial genetic signature for the pathogenicity, but what are the environmental triggers for the, I mean, especially this 90% the sporadic ALS? How can you possibly start thinking about fast forwarding that in a dish? I feel like that's coming. That data is coming. You know, a large effort is, is being put into understanding, drawing clinical data from patients, mm-hmm. their history, like whether were they a football player, were they uh, a veteran, which ALS tends to be overrepresented in athletes and and military veterans. It could be that history of strenuous activity that caused it. And so this paradigm of combining clinical data from ALS patients, their past history, their family history, their genomic data, their whole genome sequence, mm-hmm. right? their constellation of genetic variation, and then modeled, taking their iPS cells and then converting them into the disease tissue of interest and understanding the, the phenotype at the cellular level, how it all converges. So I think that's the area that we want to move towards. And you mentioned the ice bucket challenge in the, when we first started talking. How do you feel about you know, this kind of popularization and this big crowdfunding movement to try and move the research paradigm forward? It resulted in discovering genes that were involved in some 3% of sporadic patients. So how do you feel about this? It was, it was absolutely fantastic. I, I doused ice on myself. <laughs> uh, it was fantastic, and it's great to get the feedback uh, from my colleagues and friends and family that understand that um, the, you know, this paper was in part funded by the Ice Bucket Challenge as well. And so it's nice that the public is aware and understands that this is the result of their efforts. And it's, it's really satisfying to know that you know, they actually see research. It's not such like a, a weird, mysterious cloud you know, hidden in the NIH. It's really money-moving research. And it's, I, I think the, the, the response has been really positive. A lot of people uh, poo-pooed that. They said it was masturbatory or it was trivializing or mm-hmm. it wasn't really moving the needle, but it, it raised, what was it, over $100 million or something. I mean, yeah. it was real. It was real. It led to papers. It led to insight. Like you said, 3% of cases accounted for now. So maybe this is a new paradigm of, of fundraising. You're a young guy. What do you think? As a young guy, you've been very productive. Do you think when you look at your mentor and you look at your mentors who are well-established and they've traveled, the, you know, maybe the, the archetypal scientific arc, maybe, do you think science is going to be different in your lifetime, your career? How do you see your future mapping out? Yeah, uh, it's a challenging environment, right? Because the whole uh, academic track is uh, very competitive and getting more so. Not a lot of space for young investigators, um, so the system that we have right now is, um, you know, federal funding, mostly through NIH and instances like the Ice Bucket Challenge and um, creating public awareness to invite more sources of funding like, uh, you know, rich private donors. 
they need to visualize and understand that research takes funds and resources. And so I think a big challenge for young investigators like myself is to seek out alternative sources of funding and to promote awareness into the public realm and really encourage people to get involved with research and science. Richie, I think we got an idea here. Go fund me science yeah. or kick, <laughs> Kickstarter. 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 <laughs> Yeah. Let's do it, man. Although, yeah. I guess, what do they get at the end? We send them a copy of the paper, and they're like, wait, I gave you $20 for this? <laughs> I could get this for free. <laughs> yeah, there are there are websites like that. There's experiment.com that I know uh, many grad students are using currently to try and raise funds. I think there are a couple of other crowdfunding websites specifically for science that people are using currently. Just this last week, I brought it up in the roundup. There was a study that looking at science literacy in the public, and they found that science literacy isn't just what you know, it has to do with your community as well. And so literacy is what people around you are talking about, what they're interested in. And so it really drives home this idea that you just mentioned, which is that scientists need to get out and talk about what they're working on to get people excited about it. And the Ice Bucket Challenge, I think, is a really great example of scientists and science and people who are affected by ALS and their families really driving a, a movement to improve the research. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully we'll see more successful studies like this. One aspect, how much of your work, I know that the Ice Bucket Challenge, the money has funded a lot of the collaborations. So enabling large data sets to be available to multiple groups of researchers. How is your research affected by collaboration with groups around the world? So, I mean, that, that's another front to the NIH is um, really putting effort into making big data available and to providing resources for researchers to share uh, in all these large data sets coming out. Uh, specifically, the, f- the funding from the Ice Bucket Challenge was meant to develop innovative ways to uh, enhance ALS research using IPS models. So that was specifically uh, my role. This paper I view as a resource for the community as a combined set of gene expression data to track genes not only in a cross-sectional comparison. You know, most studies studying ALS compare ALS to control at one time point but, you know, I wanted to understand how genes change and what is the relationship between aging and ALS. And, you know, one of the interesting findings that I drew from this paper is that some pathways involved with aging, uh, the directionality matters. Say, for instance, protein degradation and protein catabolism, right? It needs to increase. And uh, as cells age, they need to turn over proteins to prevent the accumulation of garbage or, you know, these mm-hmm. protein aggregates in their cells. And when you take the same genes and pathways and look at how they're changed in ALS, it turns out ALS actually antagonizes them. The protein production is increased in ALS conditions. Hmm. So it is starting to understand how aging and ALS interplay with each other. Like there are antagonistic effects. At the same time, there are also vulnerable pathways, such as a reduced ability to repair DNA as our cells mature and age. And ALS further exacerbates that by further downregulating genes that are involved with DNA damage repair. In a nutshell, I think this, this is a resource for the ALS community to go back and understand, you know, I, I find this interesting pathway, so now I could look back and see how does that pathway change over aging. And in terms of new genes being discovered, that gene you mentioned, uh, there you're referring to, the 3%, it was a NIC1. It's really exciting to see that every time they discover a new GWAS association or a new gene coming out saying, okay, this is a high risk, uh, I look back in my 
supplementary tables and see that, oh, this gene really increases with maturation and it, it really increases with age. So there's that, you know, completeness, that, that story that you're able to draw from all of this. This is a great story and I hope you uh, keep finding funding and the ability to, to work on it. This is just great. Thanks. I think your future is bright, Richie. I'm not worried about you. <laughs> oh, thanks. I'm thrilled by this research. It's it's fascinating. And I, I hope with research like yours where, you know, you find that there is a, you know, there's a stumbling block to maybe modeling the adult aspect of ALS with these pluripotent stem cells, but maybe it'll give you a new direction yeah. to investigate, to be able to actually tune in on it much better. Yeah. I, I see this as a road. We have a roadmap now. Yeah. We know where we want the cells to go. Now let's, based on this rationally designed ways to get the cells to look like an adult in vivo motor neuron and once we're there we could draw the gap right Mm -hmm. we could see the whole developmental process and hopefully perhaps maybe that change will enable us to investigate all these other phenotypes that we couldn't investigate before regarding ALS and and, you know if this works then maybe we could apply this paradigm and this framework to other late onset diseases and other tissues as well of which there are unfortunately many so (laughs) We keep uncovering more and more with genomes and stem cells, and it's, this is just great. Thank you so much for joining us today. Sure. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Richie. You've been a great guest. All right. That was a stellar interview. Richie Ho, first author of this interesting new paper in Nature Neuroscience, which I think really broke open the door, created a strong foundation for a lot of future research onto what the you know underlying mechanisms of ALS are and the difference between you know fetal looking cells from IPS cells you know embryonic stem cell correlates versus the actual disease motor neurons in the adult i think it's a really important question kiki oh yeah and you know he made it sound like you know so simple like oh i just looked at all these genetic factors you know developmentally across all these different things but you know he really dug in and he's got you know, he opened up the developmental genetic spectrum right. on this disease, I think. And it's going to be a database that a lot of people are going to benefit from moving forward. For sure. Also, always nice to talk to a, the first author. I, I like talking to the first author. They're young. You get really the concept. That's a guy, he came in, he was like, this is what I want to do. Yeah. I feel like the PI always drives the research, of course. But nobody knows every single thing that happened in the paper like the first author. So it's refreshing to have uh, Dr. Ho on the show. We were lucky to have him. We were. It was great. But at this point, it's time for us to close the show, right? So Uh, why don't we do that good old SCP rant? The rant is our chance to complain about something that bothers us and most likely bothers you. All right, Dalen, what are we ranting about today? I'm not angry. I'm confused and concerned and perturbed and nervous, anxious, a lot of things, you know, which pretty much is encapsulates being a parent. But in this particular way, I'm nervous about this choice. I've been doing this home reno, you know. So a lot of times I'll plug my kid in and we don't have cable in the house. So I'll plug him into my computer on a, you know, I do like the wireless hotspot on my phone and I hook up YouTube and he immediately goes to this thing. He goes, I want to see DC, I don't want to advertise for anything. So he says, I want to see this blank, 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 blank thing. And I type it in and he plugs into it. And it's like he's listening to God. His eyes are wide open. He's enraptured. And you know what it is? It's a dude and a girl 
interchangeably standing there opening a bunch of packets of these figurines and then just putting them up and saying, yeah, we opened and we did this and saying a bunch of nonsense. What's going on? What are they do? What's Why is this interesting to my kid? And is it dangerous? What's going on? I don't know. I mean, it's the unboxing. You know, people in the tech world, they watch videos of web celebrities opening up boxes of tech products that they've just received that they're going to review. Like the unboxing is this, I think it's a really interesting psychological phenomenon, social psychological. And I watched my son go through this for a while and I ended up actually like banning them. I was like, no, (laughs) you are not going to watch these videos anymore. I can't even deal with this because it turned into, it was like, you know, the commercials that used to be on TV where it's like all of a sudden your child's like, hi, mommy, buy me this, buy me that, buy me whatever, you know? But I, it's like, if you go to a kid's birthday party and they open their presents, it's the unwrapping. Like they unwrap it and they're like, oh, that, and they throw it aside and they go to the (laughs) next one and they unwrap it. And it's like, I think it's like gambling or like scrolling through social media or like it's that element of surprise. It's the unknown. And it's like, how is this thing that I don't know what's inside of the package, how is it going to match up with my expectations? That makes it sound like it's a good thing or it's normal then. Okay. No, no, I think it's, I think it's normal. I don't know if it's good, but it's, <laughs> I think it, I think it derives or is driven, you know, with the dopamine reward system. I think it's like this surprise, 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 you know, what is it? What is it? What is it? Okay. On to the next. I think you're on to something there. And I think that this, these shows are exploiting that natural impulse and they're ramping it up to a point that that's a little bit scary because i mean it's like you say it used to be i remember with my especially my older kid because he was the first young kid in the family everybody his birthday would come everybody comes in with 100 presents and i'd watch him like you say he got addicted to the opening he had a huge pile of awesome toys next to him could care less and then when the last present was open he would he would like break into tears so like (laughs) It was totally crazy. And what I see now with the younger one, he watches these blind box opening thing. And when I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm, you're bugging me out. I'm turning it off. He freaks out. It's like yeah. I took away his drug of choice. I mean, he starts really fiending for it. So yep. I think it's, it's gone a dangerous point. I'm not a good parent. It's within my power <laughs> to stop it. But okay. You're a great parent, but you're the fact that you're you're upset about this. This is this is good. <laughs> I'm at step one. I care. Step one, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, oh my goodness! Yes. I hope uh, some of our viewers may or may not care. Maybe they care about something else. I don't know. I'd love to hear what people think about this. Anyone who thinks about these YouTube unboxing videos, let us know what you think. You can let us know on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast, or you can email us at stemcellpodcast at gmail.com. You can also send us your own rant ideas. What should we rant about next week? This concludes episode 72 of the Stem Cell Podcast. Dalen, this was a great episode. Such great stories and a great interview. Loved it. It was a good one. 72 out. 